Section 20 of History of New Brunswick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. History of New Brunswick by Peter Fisher. Section 20. Some Notes Regarding Peter Fisher, the First Historian of New Brunswick, by Reverend W. O. Raymond, L.L.D. Peter Fisher's claim to be the first of our historians rests upon two little books, both printed by a well-known publishing firm in Market Square in the city of St. John in the early years of the last century. The first of these books appeared in 1825. It comprises 110 pages, written in excellent literary style, and, considering Mr. Fisher's limited sources of information, is remarkably accurate. In the preface he observes, This work, however imperfect, must be useful, as giving the first general outline of the province, and interesting to every person who possesses a feeling for his own fireside. The other book, Notitia of New Brunswick, comprises 136 pages and was printed in 1838. In the advertisement at the beginning, the author states that circumstances have compelled him to relinquish in part his original plan and to contract the scope of the publication since the times do not warrant any great outlay on works of this description. The two books are really pamphlets in yellow paper covers and are now so rare as to be much sought for by collectors of Canadiana. Both books are written under the nom de plume of an inhabitant, and the motto that follows is the same in each, namely, Whatever concerns my country interests me. I follow nature with truth my guide. Before proceeding to consider the personality of our first historian, and to speak further of his writings, it will be of interest to speak of his antecedents. His father, Lewis Fisher, served in the War of the American Revolution on the side of the Crown in the New Jersey Volunteers, a brigade commanded by Brigadier General Cortland Skinner, the last Royal Attorney General of New Jersey. The Corps was sometimes known as Skinner's Greens. It was numerically the largest organization of British Americans in Howe's army. Officers and men were mostly natives of New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. One of the original six battalions was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Abraham Van Buskirk, and it contained a large Dutch element. Among the officers were Major Van Cortland, Captains William Van Allen, Peter Rutten, Samuel Ryerson, Jacob Van Buskirk, and Waldron Blan. Lieutenants Martin Ryerson, John Van Norden, John Heslop, John Simonson, and Yost, or Justice, Earl. Ensigns Colin McVean, Xenophon Jewett, Malcolm Wilmot, William Sorrell, and Frederick Handroff. Among the men in the ranks, many of whom came to New Brunswick and settled near Fredericton, we find such names as Van Horn, Vanderbeck, Ackerman, Fisher, Burkstaff, Swim, Ridner, Van Wert, Woolley, etc. By the settlement of so many men of this corps in New Brunswick, 
the same thrifty knickerbocker element that figured in the development of new york new jersey and pennsylvania was planted in this province lewis fisher joined the new jersey volunteers on december seventh seventeen seventy six he was taken prisoner a few weeks later together with his brother peter and fifteen others after an absence of a year and nine months he effected his escape and returned to his duty on October 2, 1778. He was thenceforth stationed chiefly at Staten Island, where his three oldest children, Eliza, Henry, and Peter, were born. When the war closed, the New Jersey volunteers were quartered at Newtown, three miles east of Brooklyn, on Long Island, New York. In the earlier muster rolls, we find Fisher's name entered as Ludwig Fisher, but later he adopted the English form Lewis Fisher. His wife, Mary, was probably of English parentage. She was the mother of a very large family and a woman of resolute spirit, which she transmitted to her descendants. The New Jersey volunteers never numbered more than 1,500 of all ranks. They, however, rendered essential service in New Jersey and in the defense of Staten Island. One of the battalions under Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Allen was conspicuous for its gallantry in the campaigns in Georgia and South Carolina. At the close of the war, the original six battalions had been consolidated into three, under command of Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Delancey, Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Allen, and Lieutenant Colonel Abraham Van Buskirk. The war may be said to have ended with the surrender of the army under Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown on October 19, 1781, and little attempt at recruiting was made subsequently. Consequently, the regiments continued to dwindle until, at the evacuation of New York two years later, they were not more than one-third of their original strength. The New Jersey Volunteers, a year after their arrival in New Brunswick, were mustered by Thomas Knox, under the supervision of Colonel Edward Winslow. The return is dated at Fort Howe, September 25, 1784, and the number of those then on their lands, and for whom the royal bounty of provisions was furnished, was as follows. First New Jersey Volunteers 158 men, 57 women, 57 children over 10, 39 children under 10, 9 servants, total 320. Second New Jersey Volunteers, 132 men, 45 women, 44 children over 10, 38 children under 10, 14 servants, Total, 273. 3rd New Jersey Volunteers, 173 men, 64 women, 47 children over 10, 42 children under 10, 6 servants. Total, 332. Total, 463 men, 166 women, 148 children over 10, 119 children under 10, 29 servants, 
total, 925. The commander of the 3rd Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Van Buskirk, did not come with his men to the River St. John, but settled in Shelburne, where he was the first mayor of the town. The troops for St. John sailed in charge of Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hewlett as senior officer, with Lieutenant Colonel Gabriel de Weber second in command. They left New York on September 15, 1783, and arrived safely in St. John Harbor on the 26th, with the exception of the transports Martha and Esther. The former was wrecked near Yarmouth, and more than half of her passengers were lost. The Esther, in which Van Buskirk's battalion had embarked, got off her course in the fog and narrowly escaped destruction, arriving a day or two behind her sister ships. As Peter Fisher was born on Staten Island on June 9, 1782, he was a very young loyalist indeed at the time of his arrival in Blue Nose Land, being, in point of fact, less than sixteen months old. Sir Guy Carleton's orders were that the several corps should proceed at once to the places allotted for their settlement, directions having been given to Captain John Colville, assistant agent of all small craft at the St. John River, to afford every assistance in his power to the corps in getting to their destinations. Three days after their arrival, the troops disembarked and encamped above the falls, near the Indian House. Hewlett wrote Sir Guy Carleton that he feared the want of small craft would greatly delay their progress. He writes again on the 13th October, 1783, that the troops had been disbanded and were getting up the river as fast as the scarcity of small craft for conveying them would admit. I shall pause here to relate an incident which will indicate the source from which Peter Fisher derived the information he gives us concerning the arrival of the Loyalists at St. Anne's and their subsequent hardships. About twenty-five years ago, William, the youngest son of Peter Fisher, read to me in his apartments in the old Park Hotel in St. John a manuscript which contained the recollections of one of his sisters, of her various conversations with her old grandmother, Mary Fisher, concerning the coming to New Brunswick and the subsequent experience of her family at St. Anne's. Mr. Fisher did not entrust the manuscript to my hands, but allowed me to make full notes, and afterwards, at my request, reread the whole, in order that I might make sure of my facts. The story which now follows is, of course, not quoted from the lips of the first narrator, but is based upon the notes made by her granddaughter in which are embodied the recollections of the conversations she had with her grandmother. The Grandmother's Story we sailed from New York in the ship Esther with the fleet for Nova Scotia. Some of our ships were bound for Halifax, some for Shelburne, and some for St. John's River. Our ship going the wrong track was nearly lost. When we got to St. John we found the place all in confusion. Some were living in log houses, some building huts, and many of the soldiers living in their tents at the lower cove. 
Soon after we landed, we joined a party bound up the river in a schooner to St. Anne's. It was eight days before we got to Oromocto. There the captain put us ashore, being unwilling on account of the lateness of the season, or for some other reason, to go further. He charged us each four dollars for the passage. We spent the night on shore, and the next day the women and children proceeded in Indian canoes to St. Anne's, with some of the party. The rest came on foot. We reached our destinations on the eighth day of October, tired out with our long journey, and pitched our tents at the place now called Salamanca, near the shore. The next day we explored for a place to encamp, for the winter was near and we had no time to lose. The season was wet and cold, and we were much discouraged at the gloomy prospect before us. Those who had arrived a little earlier had made better preparations for the winter. Some had built small log huts. This we could not do because of the lateness of our arrival. Snow fell on the second day of November to the depth of six inches. We pitched our tents in the shelter of the woods and tried to cover them with spruce boughs. We used stones for fireplaces. Our tent had no floor but the ground. The winter was very cold, with deep snow, which we tried to keep from drifting in by putting a large rug at the door. The snow, which lay six feet around us, helped greatly in keeping out the cold. How we lived through that awful winter I hardly know. There were mothers that had been reared in a pleasant country enjoying all the comforts of life with helpless children in their arms. They clasped their infants to their bosoms and tried by the warmth of their own bodies to protect them from the bitter cold. Sometimes a part of the family had to remain up during the night to keep the fires burning, so as to keep the rest from freezing. Some destitute people made use of boards, which the older ones kept heating before the fire and applied by turns to the smaller children to keep them warm. Many women and children, and some of the men, died from cold and exposure. Graves were dug with axes and shovels near the spot where our party had landed, and there in stormy winter weather our loved ones were buried. We had no minister, so we had to bury them without any religious service, besides our own prayers. The first burial ground continued to be used for some years until it was nearly filled. We called it the Loyalist Provincial's Burial Ground. The site of this old graveyard is on the Ketchum Place at Salamanca, just below Fredericton, near the shore. Some rude headstones may perhaps yet be found there. The late Adolphus G. Beckwith told me that he remembered when a boy to have seen a number of pine headboards, much decayed, but still standing in this old cemetery. The painted epitaphs, or inscriptions, were in some cases fairly well preserved. He remembered, he said, that many of the names seemed to be German or Dutch, a statement which I hardly credited at the time, but which is entirely in harmony with the old grandmother's story. Continuing her narrative, she says, 
Among those who came with us to St. Anne's, or who were there when we arrived, were Messrs. Swim, Burkstaff, McComiskey, three named Ridner, Woolley, Bass, Payne, Ryers, Acker, Lounsbury, Ingraham, Buchanan, Ackerman, Donley, Vanderbeck, Smith, Essington, and some few others. Here again the grandmother's story is confirmed by the muster rolls of the New Jersey volunteers, lately placed by our historical society in the Dominion Archives at Ottawa for safe keeping. Nearly all the names she mentions are to be found there. In Captain Waldron Blond's company we find John Swim, Vincent Swim, Moses McComiskey, David Burkstaff, Frederick Burkstaff. In Colonel Van Buskirk's company we find Abraham Vanderbeck, Conrad Ridner, Abraham Ackerman, Morris Ackerman, and Marmaduke Ackerman. In Captain Edward Earle's company, Ludwig Fisher, Peter Ridner, and Peter Smith. In Captain Ryerson's company, Samuel Buchanan. In Captain Jacob Buskirk's company, James Ackerman. Benjamin Ingraham, mentioned above, was a sergeant in the King's American Regiment. He served in the Carolinas, where he nearly died of yellow fever and was severely wounded in the Battle of Camden. He arrived at St. Anne's in a rowboat in October 1783 and built a small log house in the woods into which he moved on the 6th of November at which time there was six inches of snow on the ground. The story now continues. When the Loyalists arrived, there were only three houses standing in the old St. Anne's Plain. Two of them were old frame houses, the other a log house, which stood near the old Fisher Place. There were said to have been two bodies of people murdered here, it could not have been long before the arrival of the Loyalists that this happened. Many of the Loyalists who came in the spring had gone further up the river, but they were little better off for provisions than we were at St. Anne's. Supplies expected before the close of navigation did not come, and at one time starvation stared us in the face. It was a dreary contrast to our former conditions. Some of our men had to go down the river with hand-sleds or toboggans to get food for their famishing families. A full supply of provisions was looked for in the spring, but the people were betrayed by those they depended upon to supply them. All the settlers were reduced to great straits and had to live after the Indian fashion. A party of loyalists who came before us late in the spring had gone up the river further, but they were no better off than those at St. Anne's. The men caught fish and hunted moose when they could. In the spring we made maple sugar. We ate fiddleheads, grapes, and even the leaves of trees to allay the pangs of hunger. On one occasion some poisonous weeds were eaten along with the fiddleheads. One or two died, and Dr. Earle had all he could do to save my life. 
As soon as the snow was off the ground, we began to build log houses, but were obliged to desist for want of food. Your grandfather went up the river to Captain McKay's for provisions, and found no one at home but an old colored slave woman, who said her master and his man had gone out to see if they could obtain some potatoes or meal, having in the house only half a box of biscuits. Some of the people at St. Anne's, who had planted a few potatoes, were obliged to dig them up and eat them. Again, a few comments will show the reliability of the old lady's narrative. The three houses she mentions on the site of Fredericton were those of Benjamin Atherton, built about 1767 at the upper end of the town, near the site of the old government house, Philip Weeds, which stood on the river bank in front of the cathedral, and Oliver Thibodeau's, an Acadian, whose log house was at the lower end of town. The tradition regarding the massacre of some of the first settlers at St. Anne's refers doubtless to the destruction of the French settlement there by McCurdy's New England Rangers in February 1759, as is described at page 242 in Dr. Raymond's St. John River History. The party of loyalists, who had gone further up the river in the late spring of 1783, were the King's American Dragoons, who settled in Prince William. Resuming once more the narrative, the grandmother says, In our distress we were gladdened by the discovery of some large patches of pure white beans marked with a black cross. They had probably been originally planted by the French, but were now growing wild. In our joy at the discovery, we called them at first the Royal Provincial's Bread, but afterwards the staff of life and hope of the starving. I planted some of these beans with my own hands, and the seed was preserved in our family for many years. There was great rejoicing when the first schooner arrived with cornmeal and rye. In those days the best passages up and down the river took from three to five days. Sometimes the schooners were a week or ten days on the way. It was not during the first year alone that we suffered from want of food. Other years were nearly as bad. The first summer after our arrival, all hands united in building their log houses. Dr. Earls was the first that was finished. Our people had but few tools, and those of the rudest sort. They had neither bricks or lime, and chimneys and fireplaces were built of stone laid in yellow clay. They covered the roofs of the houses with bark bound over with small poles. The windows had only four small panes of glass. The first store was kept by a man named Cairns, who lived in an old house on the bank of the river near the gate of the first church built in Fredericton, in front of the present cathedral. He used to sell fish at one penny each, and butternuts at two for a penny. He also sold tea at two dollars per pound, which was to us a great boon. We greatly missed our tea. Sometimes we used an article called Labrador, and sometimes steeped spruce or hemlock bark for drinking, but I despised it. 
There were no domestic animals in our settlement at first except one black and white cat, which was a great pet. Some wicked fellows who came from the States killed, roasted, and ate the cat, to our great indignation. A man named Conley owned the first cow. Poor Conley afterwards hanged himself, the reason for which was never known. For years there were no teams, and our people had to work hard to get their provisions. Potatoes were planted among the black stumps and turned out well. Pigeons used to come in great numbers and were shot or caught by the score in nets. We found in their crops some small round beans which we planted. They grew very well and made excellent green beans which we ate during the summer. In the winter time, our people had sometimes to haul their provisions by hand fifty or a hundred miles over the ice or through the woods. In summer, they came in slow sailing vessels. On one occasion, Dr. Earle and others went up the river to Canada on snowshoes with hand sleds, returning with bags of flour and biscuits. It was a hard and dangerous journey and they were gone a long time. For several years we lived in dread of the Indians, who were sometimes very bold. I have heard that the Indians from Canada once tried to murder the people on the St. John River. Coming down the river, they captured an Indian woman of the St. John tribe, and the chief said they would spare her if she would be their guide. They had eleven canoes in all, and they were tied together, and the canoe of the guide attached to the hindermost. As they drew near the Grand Falls, most of the party were asleep, and the rest were deceived by the woman, who told them that the roaring they heard was caused by a fall at the mouth of the stream, which here joined the main river. At the critical moment, the Indian woman cut the cord which fastened her canoe to the others and escaped to the shore while the Canada Indians went over the fall and were lost. In the early days of the settlement at St. Anne's, some fellows that had come from the States used to disturb the other settlers. They procured liquor at Van Horn's tavern and drank heavily. They lived in a log cabin which soon became a resort for bad characters. They formed a plot to go up the river and plunder the settlers, provisions being their chief object. They agreed that if any of their party were killed in the expedition, they should prevent discovery of their identity by putting him into a hole cut in the ice. While they were endeavoring to effect an entrance into a settler's house, a shot, fired out of a window, wounded a young man in the leg. The others then desisted from their attempt but cut a hole in the ice and thrust the poor fellow in, who had been shot, although he begged to be allowed to die in the woods, and promised, if found alive, not to betray them, but they would not trust him. Here the story of the old grandmother comes abruptly to an end. Enough, however, is preserved in these extracts to indicate the source of a good deal of the very valuable information concerning the early experience of the Loyalists in the New Brunswick wilderness, which appears in Mr. Fisher's Sketches of New Brunswick. 
doubtless what he has related on this topic in his little book is based upon what he learned from the lips of his mother. To her care and devotion, in all human probability, he owed his preservation during the first eventful winter spent under canvas on the old St. Anne's Plain. Peter Fisher acquired a pretty good education for those days. A facsimile of his signature is here given, which shows that his penmanship was excellent, and compared more than favorably with that of his son and namesake, Louis Peter Fisher, who was for some thirty-odd years mayor of Woodstock, and the leading barrister of that place, and whose signature is also here given for comparison. The advantages of education were not great in the elder Peter Fisher's day, but he had a pretty competent instructor in an English schoolmaster, Beeling Stevens Williams, who was born in Cornwall in 1754 and came to Nova Scotia, a clerk in the Navy, in 1779. He settled in Cumberland, Nova Scotia, where he taught school and was married, removing to Fredericton in 1790, where he again taught school for nearly forty years. He was an accomplished penman and an expert in arithmetic and the elementary mathematics. There can be no doubt, I think, that Fisher was indebted to this gentleman for an education that was very fair indeed in the then circumstances of the country. Fisher unquestionably possessed a good deal of natural ability and was something of a philosopher, as will appear when we come to consider his writings. He carried on quite an extensive business in lumbering at one time. He was noted as a tireless pedestrian, and there were few, even among his juniors, who could keep pace with him in a walk of fifty miles, which he thought nothing of. He married on August 15, 1807, Susanna Stevens Williams, the Reverend George Pigeon, rector of Fredericton, officiating at their wedding. Their family was a large one, seven sons and four daughters. The late Judge Charles Fisher, who was born September 16, 1808, was the oldest. Another son, Henry Fisher, was chief superintendent of education of New Brunswick. Louis Peter Fisher, a younger son, was for years Woodstock's most prominent citizen and a very eminent lawyer. Another son, William Fisher, was for some years Indian commissioner. One of the daughters was the wife of Honorable Charles Connell, postmaster general, at one time in the local government, and a member of the First Dominion Parliament for the county of Carleton. At least three of the sons of Peter Fisher were actively interested in education. Of these, Charles Fisher received the degree of B.A. at King's College, now the University of New Brunswick, in 1830. His was the first class to graduate after the incorporation of the college by royal charter under the name of King's College with the style and privileges of a university. He read law with Judge Street, then Advocate General, was admitted attorney in 1831, and barrister in 1833. He spent a year at one of the inns of court in England. 
his alma mater conferred on him the degree of D.C.L. in 1866. Judge Fisher, during his public life, was a warm friend of the college at Fredericton. At the session of the provincial legislature in 1859, he moved the bill under which the old King's College was transformed into the University of New Brunswick. He was later a member of the Senate of the University. Henry Fisher has already been mentioned as one of the early chief superintendents of education. His portrait may be seen in the office of Dr. W. S. Carter, chief superintendent of education, in Fredericton. Lewis Peter Fisher of Woodstock was for years an active trustee of the Carleton County Grammar School and a strenuous advocate of free school education. He had no children. By his will, he left his large fortune to establish a number of institutions of an educational and philanthropic character in the town of Woodstock, the affairs of which he had long ably administered as mayor. These institutions include the Fisher Memorial Hospital, established at a cost of $50,000, Fisher Memorial Public School, $60,000, Fisher Vocational School, $48,000. Fisher Free Public Library, $50,000. Total, $208,000. This is the largest individual benefaction to any community in New Brunswick, if not in the Maritime Provinces. The memorial buildings are all situated within the limits of the town of Woodstock, and with the exception of the hospital are handsome substantial brick buildings. In addition to the gift of the buildings and their equipment, the estate contributes from time to time to their maintenance, under the capable administration of the trustees, A. B. Connell, K. C., and Colonel F. H. J. Dibley. It will thus be seen that, although the late mayor of Woodstock left no child to perpetuate his name, his memory will be kept green for future generations as a philanthropist and a man of high ideals. Space will not admit of any extended reference to the descendants of our first provincial historian. A short sketch of the life of the Honorable Charles Fisher will be found in Lawrence's Judges of New Brunswick and Their Times, pages 528 to 532. As a man who, in his day, rendered essential service to his native province, Charles Fisher deserves a more extensive biography than has hitherto been attempted by any writer. Footnotes It is of interest to know that this legend was told by the Indians to the English settlers shortly after their arrival. The name of the Indian heroine is given as Malobiana, or Malabim. I am pretty certain that Susanna Stevens Williams was a daughter of Beeling Stevens Williams, the schoolmaster. W. O. Raymond. End of section 20. Recording by Roger Moline. End of History of New Brunswick by Peter Fisher.